0: Surprise! Here is another episode of Let's Talk Memoir for this week. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today my guest is L.L. Kirshner, who is an award-winning screenwriter and author. Her second memoir, Blissful Thinking, a memoir of overcoming the wellness revolution, reveals how the chase for wellness made her sicker until she discovered she'd been asking the wrong questions. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Bomb Magazine, and The Rumpus. She's currently working on her first novel, Florida Girls. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir!
1: Hi, Ronit. It is such a pleasure to be talking with you about memoir. I love listening to your podcast and listening to you talk to people about how they build their narratives and the choices they make and how things all come together. It's fascinating and endlessly fascinating to me
0: oh I'm so glad I love doing it and I feel like there is so much to ask and to think about I feel like it doesn't really get old for me and I'm excited that we get to talk about your new memoir and just how you've been marketing and your writing life and all the things so can you share a little bit about
1: blissful thinking I would love to. So, as you said in the succinct description at the top, it's it's about how I was chasing wellness and and getting sicker. And really, for me, the chase was after spiritual wellness. Although uh, there's a lot of practices that I got into that were more physical, like the yoga. I mean, that was kind of my gateway drug into it. <laughs> and. You know, in yoga, I started hearing people talk about this sort of inner Buddha concept. And I I thought, well, gosh, what's that? And why can't I have it? Mm. (laughs) And longing and and feeling like I was missing out kept getting more intense. And in some ways, it's because of the way that I was going about practicing my practices. Very much like an addict. The addict brain Mm. always looking for more, more, more. And... Mm seeing a lot of lack. There are actually a lot of practices and places that I visited that didn't make the book because hmm. it just starts to sound repetitive. because well, I didn't be... realize
0: that. I mean, I know that not everything ends up in our <laughs> books, but right. I actually didn't realize that, you know, you must have gone to lots and lots of places that aren't in there.
1: Right, and that's one of the great things about living in New York City is that you don't have to travel. A lot of people came through town that I got to um, <laughs> experience, and you know, there's one um, famous guru who was in situ for many years, and probably still is at the Chelsea Hotel, who right. I also went and visited. And I, there are so many opportunities to fall down a rabbit hole in New York City. Yeah, <laughs> in so many ways, you know, I chased and. I feel really fortunate that I came through it relatively unscathed. I shouldn't say relatively, completely unscathed and, and better for it. I mean, I was able to, and I really, you know, I talk about this in the book too. I, I credit my my mom's own skepticism, for better or worse, with um, making me sort of unable to just completely assimilate into cult culture, because I, I also quote Amanda Montell's book. Um, Cultish. Yes, which is so fantastic. Mm-hmm. And she, as a linguist, uh, and, and in a way maybe because as a writer, it just made complete sense to me. Her line between um, what is and what is not a cult is, is drawn around language. And mm-hmm. the... The kind of getting in sync and on page that that happens inside cults, the, the language, I, I found I find a lot of it just so laughable, it's hard to take mm-hmm. seriously. So it's when you were in those away.
0: situations though, mm-hmm. did you hold on to that skepticism as well? Like do you feel like you kinda had an eye roll about it most of the time or do you feel like No, you,
1: I wouldn't say that at all. Yeah, I mean,
0: do you feel like you ever Uh, lost yourself to a point where you, I mean, I know that you were seeking, so I'm not trying to say that I didn't understand the book, but I'm saying, was there a time when you felt like, okay, uh, if this guru or this leader told me to do this, this, or this right now, I would be all in without questioning it?
1: Well, really the ones that I included, except for Osho. Osho is the one guru that I was very skeptical of the entire time. And in fact, it was being there That made me much more open to the messaging that's at the heart of the cult. You know, the thing is, let's face it, cults start with great ideas. That's how they become cults because people are drawn by what are oftentimes really solid, smart messaging and ways of looking at things and unique, different, new ways of looking at things. And I kind of retroactively did that with with Osho. I wanted to go there because he had so many, not he, he was gone already by the time I went. Oh, and
0: we should actually like, I don't want you to forget what you were saying, but we should give a little bit of background. Osho, or he's also, he was previously known as Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh. And that is also a.k.a. the sex guru, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the guru I write about in my memoir when she comes back that my mom left to follow twice. So there's a some connection here, some overlap.
1: Absolutely. And that's really well, I, I loved your memoir so much, but also uh, the way that you kind of deal with that. And, and I didn't this part didn't really make it into the book. But one of the things that I did when I was there was I talked to various women about where are the children? Like, all of this sex leads to something and, and I'm not seeing any evidence of it. It seems really strange. I actually, I a client of mine, my writing business, had been a member of Osho. And in fact, that is how she ended. I wrote an article about it many, many years ago and that is what caused her to reach out to me. And she was so terrific to talk to in terms of you know, coming to that realization that it was not a supportive place for women, ultimately. Even Even
0: in the more modern incarnation for it? Like, even when you went to go see it, the the, new... Oh, completely not. Oh, wow, still.
1: Oh, still. Yeah, no. I I mean, um, unless I talked to a very select subset of people, I can't claim to be an expert on everyone who ever experienced... you know
0: of course of course events but that's just interesting because I feel that so much of it is centered on uh following you know your bliss and also of course you're finding enlightenment and self-empowerment and becoming who you are and being free and so I guess would you say it's sort of sexist or you know the women didn't feel safe to you or can you elaborate a little
1: well, again, this wasn't my particular experience because I didn't end up getting pregnant and having a baby yeah, in the yeah. cult, but they didn't feel supported in that. Mm-hmm. And there there wasn't any real plan for that. It was sort of like, well, that's an unfortunate consequence, isn't it?
0: <laughs> of sex? <laughs> Fig- <laughs> yeah. Figure
1: it out, which, you know, very 1950s, if you ask me. but. Again, that wasn't my direct experience. My direct experience was that I kind of retroactively tried to figure out what was so compelling about Osho. And the reason that I wanted to go there was because of all of this, um, as I was saying before, the the different kinds of new age healing modalities that they had at the in one place. so i went to the I went to the um, center in Pune, and you could do, so there were so many offerings crystal this craniosacral that massage the other and meditation and really I was drawn to family constellation first Mm -hmm. and these are all things that I find very interesting in part because I had tried lots of conventional therapy I'd been in therapy for many years and without having kind of the breakthrough that I was looking for and ultimately Mm -hmm. the breakthrough I was looking for did come from these experiences but it Mm -hmm. didn't come so much from the experiences as frankly my frustration with it and (laughs) and in part from because that balanced view cult that I went to then Mm -hmm. next they talked about data and honestly there was a point where I would have completely joined up with that group in New York City but then you know, for what it's worth, that moment passed. But they had, to me, that was a real breakthrough message. One, that all of the events are data, and you can look at them in that way, which is, it's cold and impersonal. Mm -hmm. So not ultimately, to my way of thinking, satisfactory, but in terms of a spiritual, you know, a spiritual connection. But in terms of taking... (laughs) things less personally that happened. Uh, But the bigger breakthrough there was this idea of taking short moments as as a practice for meditation, as opposed to sitting through torturous hours of silence, which for me had sort of turned into this is the ultimate way, this is the real way, this is the true way. And if I wasn't doing that, I was sort of cheating. And it was kind of like a dam Which is interesting,
0: right? To like put all those rules and expectations Mm -hmm. on your spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Which I think we a lot of us do. And I think I I actually can't think of one person, one person I know who's ever told me, oh, I love meditating. It's really easy for me. (laughs) Not that it's bad to do. I'm just saying most of the people in my circle, so it could be me. It could be this sort of group that is very biased in this way. But most people I know say they don't have the patience for those long meditations or that their mind wanders and it's so hard for them. So I I see the value in what you're Talking about
1: right. Well, considering our shared interests, I can imagine our (laughs) circle of friends being like a Venn diagram. And yet, I I don't know anybody who would answer that question. I love meditating either, Um, but I definitely know a lot of people who have answered that question, saying, you know, oh God, I've tried, but I hate it so much I can't even do it. And I actually I have a quiz that I put together based on all of these different. now this is not you know a a be all and end all. Actually, the point of the quiz is to kind of instigate what happened for me this idea that oh there are different types of of practice and i can try this one and if it doesn't work i can try that one and you know for a long time i would criticize myself thinking well i'm just a spiritual dilettante Mm -hmm. and then i actually interviewed tara brock i don't know if you're familiar with her um she's a a meditation teacher of some renown and she's written several books um, notably Radical Acceptance and she's got a huge following and she does a lot of Dharma talks um, that you know or in podcast form and she's an amazing teacher and very much in insight in, in the grounded in insight meditation practice and she said well yeah obviously if if it's not working for you, you need to try something else. And it's just that kind of like radical compassion for oneself that she practices, and that I it really is what I learned as a result of all of this trying to figure out what was wrong with me. It was really coming to the point of, of of asking myself, "Well, wait, what if what if nothing is wrong? What if I what if I look for what's?" write with me you know.
0: So what aspects of your story did you find the most challenging to write in this book?
1: Well interestingly some of the most challenging stuff was was going back and telling stories from the first memoir because they're sort of overlapping. The first memoir is you know the the plot is about how um, my marriage ended and I was left in this uh, patriarchal Muslim society of Qatar to kind of reimagine myself as a woman, because I had discovered that I was in early menopause, so I would never have my own children, and I was about to turn 40 and, and, and. And it just was this you know perfect storm of things that also happened in a weird vacuum where my closest friends and my family were eight time zones away, which is a significantly difficult barrier to overcome, especially if you're traveling internationally all the time. And really, as a result of that, I think that sort of bankrupt feeling that I had is is what sparked the frenzy that became this this memoir. And and I will tell you, and I honestly, Ronit, I don't recall if we've talked about this before, but I I actually rewrote the story in order to make it a little simpler to digest. Because in fact, I went back and forth from um, New York to India every other year throughout wow. this period of time. And I wrote the book that way at one point, And people consistently had a hard time following where I was when. And I couldn't quite see it but I got that feedback consistently enough I thought well let me just try and you know sandwich these things because it Mm -hmm. didn't really make that much I I ended up cutting a lot of, of stories which I'm going to you know reissue on my Substack because there's some really good ones but I realized that there was some repetition in what was happening
0: and so was it hard to pick was was the challenge picking out what to take out or to fix the timeline how how was there a challenging aspect or was it pretty much all kind of uniform
1: fixing the timeline I think was was enormously it was sort of a challenge that I didn't anticipate it was it was kind of figuring out what I didn't want to tell again out of the first book. So that was the first hurdle because people kept saying, well, but what, how did you end up in, what happened? And I thought, oh God, read the first book, you know, which is a ridiculous kind of thought to have. You have to give readers enough information to have the book make sense. But again, I I didn't want to repeat myself. And, and so I got to a point where I had enough of the, the, first story, which was really, again, about that discovering my own internalized misogyny within that patriarchal culture, um, to to make it coherent. And, and then bringing in the second story, which is, again, going into that with that feeling of kind of personal, spiritual bankruptcy and feeling the need for radical change and, and drawing that clearly without, you know, over- overdoing it
0: I was wondering how your work as a journalist has informed writing this book if it has
1: oh absolutely I'm so grateful I mean I, I'm one of the few people who've worked in journalism and has a degree in journalism that I know but you know I what I really learned how to do was to do a lot of double checking. So on the one hand I had these terrible notes and and I keep going back to this silent meditation but it's a very easy, it's a very easy example. I I had written a lot of notes, they weren't in order, they were very strange and you know some of them made sense, some of them I couldn't read and um, then ultimately they got destroyed by uh, Hurricane Sandy, I was living in New York City at the time. But it was easy to kind of go back and double check that. I had also been blogging actively. So I had those records. I had family that I could ask questions to, friends that I could double check things with. And, and like you, I also, you know, this is a renowned person, Osho. And it was when I started doing some of that due diligence Again, this was many years ago when I first started writing this book. That's when I discovered, be- long before the Wild Wild Country documentary came out, that there had been this murderous cult out in Oregon. And I just I was astonished. I thought, what? Like I thought I thought, I thought the sex cult was a big hurdle to get over. And I honestly, I, I wondered if I had discovered that before I went, if I would have still gone.
0: That's an I, interesting question, yeah. for sure. And I, yeah. I
1: don't know. I mean, I was so tentative about it and yet also intrigued. I, I just don't know. But I had also, again, gotten involved with the polyamory community in New York City. You know, really, I couldn't deny what the, the, the premise was, which was, you know, you don't have to spurn love. Uh, you, your heart can expand. You, 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 you have room for more than one person to love at a time. And I thought, well, you know, my first boyfriend who died, I didn't decide I didn't love him anymore, but I then I did go off and marry someone else. So yes, it is possible to love more than one person at a time deeply. Then there's simultaneously, which is a whole other thing that I'm not so sure I'm cut out for. But and it wasn't. You
0: want to set up that that sure. About because this is exactly when you get involved in that community,
1: right? And you know, the funny thing was was that as a yoga teacher, I took very seriously this idea, you know, that you shouldn't um, have sexual relationships with your students but i don't know that a lot of people are even aware or they think of a yoga teacher as a traditional student teacher Teacher, relationship and again this was before all of that went down like the whole john friend thing and even the jiva mukti scandal a lot of scandals that came up in the yoga world were after this happened so it wasn't it wasn't on people's minds i don't think people viewed it that way but i was that was one of the many things I was obsessed with. And this is the whole, this was part of the fear that I had that if I didn't get to the root of what whatever it was that was so wrong with me that made my husband, you know, run off, <laughs> then I would drink again because I recognize that obsessive compulsive thinking is the key pon- component of a, a, a relapse for me. If my brain starts spinning out, that is a bad sign. I met this gentleman in my class. It turned out that he had a bigger surprise than just what I was hoping for. <laughs> you want me to read it?
0: Yeah, please All right. do.
1: So this is from the chapter titled Big Love, which of course is after that show on HBO that's now so far in the rear view. I don't know that anybody will <laughs> even get that <laughs> I, reference. I used to watch it, Right, yeah. I love that show. What would happen if parents ran out of love after one child, Ricky asked, staring directly into my eyes. We were at a bar on the Upper East Side Unlike being around weed, I'd never minded being in pubs so long as I had a reason to be there besides watching other people drink. Though the establishment was near where I taught yoga, Ricky wasn't my student, exactly. We'd met in a class I was subbing. Of course I'd noticed him. Between his dark eyes and pale complexion, Ricky had the brooding look of a silent film star. When he posed his question, I could offer only a wide-eyed silence in response. Does he want kids? Is he open to adoption? The human capacity for love is boundless, Ricky went on. Maybe I won't die alone. Otherwise, we'd never have evolved. I had no idea where Ricky was going with his spiel, but I was glad to be along for the ride. Though flirtatious and chatty around class, he'd never taken the interactions any further. So I did. In the name of research for an article, I asked him to tell me his best vacation sex story. He invited me to listen over a drink. Bingo. I've been wanting to talk to you, Ricky said, but I wasn't sure if it was okay. It's fine, I said, assuming he meant the taboo of crossing the student-teacher line. You aren't in my regular class. Ricky furrowed his brow, but went on to profess his interest in my writing. He and his partner organized adult parties. Maybe I'd write that one up? Partner? Adult? Were those euphemisms for wife and sex? The answers were yes. Before my marriage, I equated multiple sex partners with cheating. Not so much since the unwanted split. Maybe the years of living in the polygamous land of Cutter had softened me to the idea, but keeping all the wives around now struck me as far gentler than discarding them. Maybe we should see other people, but stay married? I'd asked my ex in our single in-person meeting. A desperate leap, to be sure, but he had to be at least as bored by our sex life as I was. My then-still-husband's olive skin went uncharacteristically pink, or perhaps the color was more obvious against those green-striped couches. He merely shook his head in response. No. Now here was this Ricky, a person I'd met in the real world, freely discussing his spouse and their active celebration of many lovers. You want me to write an article about your sex parties? Oh, no, he smiled. Our parties are about much more than sex. You don't need to remove so much as a wristwatch. As I wondered how I'd come across as uptight, Ricky explained that he and his wife didn't host swingers' parties because they were polyamorists. Their get-togethers were about more than sex, he said, because polyamory embraced an expanded definition of love, one that included multiple partners. It's about the possibilities of our emotional landscape, he said. It is possible to love more than one person at a time, deeply, and intimately. His words rang true. My feelings for Jeffrey, my first love, hadn't died with him. Yet I'd gone on to meet and marry another. In much the same way, the ex's disappearance didn't flip an emotional off switch. In the world I wanted to inhabit, recovering from lost love meant learning to live with loss, not scorning the love that existed. If I hoped to marry again, I was going to have to start somewhere. Like a modern-day Margaret Mead, I would study Ricky. He had a wife and multiple other female companions. I could observe the group up close, familiarize myself with their mating behavior. Once I'd learned their ways, I could adopt them and join their ranks, becoming someone whose heart was boundless. Surely I would find love. I took more direct aim. You're just so attentive, I smiled, blinking as if bewildered. I thought you were attracted to me. Now look away. Oh, but I am attracted to you. He said, I wanted you to know about my situation first. Perfect.
0: (laughs) Thank you. There's so many directions we can go, but I do I want to ask you something. I wanna ask you I'm open where you are with self-love now, after all this searching, you know, how do you feel about yourself?
1: Well, as I talk about in the book, really Learning to let myself off the hook, coming to the point of understanding that, you know, I'm not a human doing, I'm a human being, which, you know, it's a cliché, but Mm -hmm. it's a good one (laughs) because, Mm -hmm. you know, I spent a lot of time in recovery really thinking it was a self-improvement program and it's not. and i don't know if that makes a lot of sense if you're not in recovery but what i'll well, i'll try and ex- just explain it the the way that i do in the book you know i just i came to this realization that i had been obsessed with finding what was wrong with me in the same way that i had been obsessed with drugs and alcohol and mm-hmm. other other things and so i didn't need to you know keep myself holding myself accountable. And a therapist asked me at one point and again this is a scene in the book where you know I I tell her this is before I recognize that I can actually do it myself, but I she, she, you know, I tell her, well, she, she, I'm t- I'm beating myself up in the middle of our session and she was she's sort of like um you know, what are you doing? And I told her, you know, well, I have to hold myself accountable. And she was like, "Well, how's that working out for you?" And I was, you know, I was offended at the time. I was like, well, that's profesh, isn't it? But, you know, it actually, it finally, it was one of the things that really cut through the chatter. You know, I, at the beginning of the book, I am hearing people talk about this inner Buddha concept. I can't find mine. I'm not sure that I have one because Uh I don't observe it. I really don't observe it until the end of the book when I am, again, at that Balanced View cult, And we're taking short moments, and I realize, oh, look at this. I do have this inner spirit that is incredible, vibrant, optimistic, all of these things. And it it completely changed everything, you know, to recognize that actual existence in my self. And know that everybody has that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And when I let myself off the hook, it lets everybody off the hook. It doesn't need to be a joint experience of accountability, right? It it can be an, it, life can be a lot easier than that. Which isn't to say that there aren't things to question, that there aren't things that are wrong. And I and I do try to, you know, talk about that in the book, because you, if, if everything is acceptable, then there is no center. There is no right and wrong and I don't I don't believe that.
0: What about naming people in your book and including stories about them? Mm-hmm. What was your approach? Did you check with them first, or did you let them know you were writing about them? Or what, Can you talk about that?
1: So in some cases, yes. In other cases, no. So the, some of the characters are composite characters, so I didn't really go over anyone with that. My mother, uh, as I said, she'd read material. She hasn't obviously seen it since 2014 and my sister has seen parts of it. Anybody who is sort of a major character in the book is named. Uh, One person that I haven't really talked about the book with is Willie, who is a major character. That's his actual name. He is, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not really in communication with him, so I didn't share anything with him.
0: So what about marketing, because you are really out there, you have a sub-stack, you, you seem to be really good at putting yourself and your work out there, can you offer some do's and don'ts for writers who want to get the word out about their books?
1: Well, I will say, I um, again, working with a writing group has been instrumental, having writing friends in my life. Writing is like the one solo career that takes a village. Uh, <laughs> And that's not to say you listen to everybody's input. You know, you, you, it's there. There are a couple things. One is becoming very clear with yourself, and and not just clear with well, that's not what I wanted to say, but clear with your uh, why, with the aboutness of why you wrote your book. The point of writing my book is, I hope, for people to get more connected with self care you know, the verb of it, not the noun of it, the actions of taking care of oneself and as opposed to purchasing some kind of wellness, whether it's a trip or a workshop or whatever, but to kind of get into the deeper work of really going after that change and that understanding, which is what I was craving from the beginning. I just couldn't figure out how to get there without trying all of these different things, but I don't, that that's necessary at all so my main don't is don't be afraid uh, of of what is going to transpire don't not do it because of what you're going to feel because you're going to if if you're a writer you're going to feel bad if you're not writing and not putting it out there is going to lead to the same kind of negative feelings that putting it out there and having unpredictable reactions will lead to
0: Mm -hmm. right no it's true like I, i think that's great and then marketing wise do you feel like you had to push yourself to get your material out there or are you naturally pretty good at marketing?
1: I think marketing is one of the most unnatural experiences <laughs> <laughs> of all. I love, I love that. That's so true, right?
0: Yeah, but, but you do it. I mean, how do you get yourself to do it then?
1: Well, I did it for many years um, as a... Uh, Profession, um, you know, that's was I was the marketing director for the Warhol Museum and for the Tribeca Film Festival and uh, in Cutter and all of these different jobs that I held. So I, I kind of understand it, but it's much harder to do for yourself, even if you are good at it in the real world, so to speak. And when I go to do, it, I mean, I honestly I do think that being on the Home Shopping Network has helped me just take it all less seriously and and really having been doing it for so long I mean I've been writing since I got out of college and you just you everything that could go wrong has gone wrong and nothing is as serious as all that (laughs) you know when people react badly to your work a lot of times you know yeah I could have done that better but that doesn't it's not an indictment of who I am even when people try to make it very personal if they mm-hmm. feel that they disagree with something that you've written, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. What about some of your favorite memoirs or memoirs that were really helpful to you in writing?
1: Well, I mean, I love Cheryl Strade's book, which probably sounds very uh, overused as an example, but I, I can't help it. I, I just, I find she has such a, a deft hand at combining excellent craft with an accessible voice uh, to deliver universal messages and I I love that. Um, I refer to that a lot. Uh, Mary Carr, I really like her work, um, both her memoir and her craft book, Liars Club and um, Lit and The Art of Memoir. I read a lot of memoirs of other people in recovery as well. My, I think that the story that doesn't get told about recovery very much is that of somebody with long-term sobriety. Most stories are about the getting clean of it all. So there's the rocky bottom, and then you know the redemption kind of story. But I so appreciate the the honesty. I love Alexandra Fuller for that as well. You know, beautiful, beautiful writing. I just I love beautiful writing, and I love um, people who are fearless truth tellers. So books that deliver both of those things really speak to me. And I and I but I also do like a light touch. I loved your book, Ronit. Oh,
0: thank oh. you. Thank you. So do you have any last words of advice for writers working on their memoirs?
1: My main advice is to get a group of writers that you can support and will support you and it it might seem mysterious you know take as many writing classes as you can and connect with the people that you feel real resonance for don't run toward people who are ready to put you down (laughs) because you think that they know something that you don't you know find find writers who energize you and that you feel that um you you can learn from but but in a productive way. Our little creative selves are, are so delicate, and there's not a whole lot of um, support for them <laughs> in the world. So mm-hmm. we have to do, as, as, as a writer, as a creative person, we have to do what we can to really swaddle them and bubble wrap.
0: I love that that's my favorite (laughs) Um, bubble wrap your creative self so where can people find you where's the best place
1: I am on socials everywhere at llkirshner underscore and if you want to check out the meditation quiz it's llkirshner.com forward slash quiz
0: thank you so much for spending this time with me and for your insight on blissful thinking and, and writing and really just becoming ourselves
1: and thank you for having me I one of the things that I so really loved about your book was that you took responsibility and moved forward and and you kept this spirit of growth throughout and I just it's so evident in who you are and how you do things I just I really admire that
0: oh gosh thank you so much that I that That means a lot to me. You know, we write these books and we try our best to, I feel like it, at least in my case, have eyes around all of my head Mm -hmm. to see where my blind spots are, what I'm missing. Mm -hmm. And and then you think later, oh, I should have done that. Mm. So to hear that is really just very affirming. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.